Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. This is 365 Sports, powered by Sikkim365.com. Taylor McCarr joins us now, as he does every week at uh, just about this time. And Taylor, we'll start off, like, we'll just go in chronological order of the week. Um, Your thoughts on the college football playoff committee's decision and where we are here in the postseason as we end this stupid 14 playoff before we go to 12. Uh, uh, are you a more a, a best four or foremost deserving guy? Well, I stupid is the exact way to describe it, right? Let's start there. Um, it should have never been a 14 playoff. The committee and the structure uh, was bailed out by and large, except for the very first year back in 2014 all the way till now. More often than not, the, it sorted itself out, and the committee did not have to make the tough decisions. This year, it blew up in their face, and the chaos scenario that everybody sort of assumed wouldn't happen, because I think everybody assumed Florida State would drop one of their last two. They didn't, and we ended up with the committee having to choose between the best team and or the most deserving team. Now, my opinion is based off of what the rules, how it was written, and I don't like the rules. But how it was written calls for the best four teams. And Alabama is better at this point in the season than Florida State is. I think if you look at uh, the reaction, look across college football, if you would rather play at this point in time, Florida State with their backup quarterback and what they've shown on offense versus Alabama who's surging, everybody would say, well, obviously you'd rather take the team that anybody that's in the playoff right now would be a two-score favorite over Florida State. You can't say that about Alabama. Now, that doesn't mean that this was the correct decision for what is fair or what is right in the landscape of college football. But by how the the rules were written, the committee did the right thing, again, by how it was written. I hate it. I hate the structure that we had for this long and that it having four spots for for five power conference teams, again, the committee was bailed out for a very long time, and this was – uh, it, I think it's for a number of reasons. I think it's great that this is the last year that we had this structure. Agree fully on that, Taylor. Uh, in terms of the games, it's almost like they've gotten lost, right, from last weekend because there's been all this blowback as far as the teams go. But what were your thoughts on Alabama and this journey they've been on ever since that Texas loss and all of the questions about Jalen Milrow and him getting benched and now here they are and they beat the unbeatable and break that streak that Georgia had going towards you know, the, the third national title, no one's ever done it. That's not going to happen again because the tide rose and are once again SEC champs. Your thoughts on just the journey that they've been on and, and now how they're kind of rocking it as they are going to go into this playoff field. Yeah, well, look, I think one of the things that, that has also been lost is what an incredible performance and coaching job that was by Nick Saban. Yes. And I understand at a national level there's, some fatigue, right, from Alabama. And I think a lot of people were rooting for Alabama to not get in just because people want to see different teams in the playoffs. That's human nature. I get that. But 
the performance that that defense specifically put on the field against Georgia, although that's out of Nick Saban's storied career, I think that should go down as one of his best coaching performances. What they did on defense and some of the things that they changed after the first couple drives, he talked about it in his postgame presser to try and confuse Carson Beck, to mix up looks, to get guys in spots where they could influence Carson Beck. I I thought it was a fantastic job. I think, like I mentioned a minute ago, Alabama back half of the season is a different team to what they were in the first half of the season. That doesn't discount Texas going into Tuscaloosa and winning by two scores. But I do think uh, you're seeing Alabama play better football in the back half of the season. And the, the argument that a lot of people will use is, well, look at how they played against Auburn. Rivalry game on the road in the SEC, the emotion that comes with that. I think as long as you win that game, you see that they turn around, they beat Georgia. I don't want to sound like an Alabama apologist, but that is a really good football team that is playing well down the stretch. The the thing that also stood out to me was for a number of reasons, obviously getting into the playoff being the number one, but I thought Texas ended up in the best spot out of all of these teams. They end up in the three seed. They don't have to play Michigan or Alabama in the first round. They get to play a team that I think they match up probably the best out of all four against in Washington. And they get to play in the Sugar Bowl, which is a state over, and it'll be mostly a Texas crowd. So for a number of reasons, I thought Texas ended up with the best draw out of these four teams. Taylor, um, I want to go back to you mentioned the rivalry game. Uh, What is it about it like – the? I know there's no science to it, right? Where that one, the emotions and all that, you've played in them uh, before. Like, what is it about playing in that game that everyone cares about more than all the rest of them that makes them so much different? Well, go back to Texas' loss against Oklahoma Mm -hmm. uh, earlier this season. I know that wasn't on the road, but neutral site, hostile environment. Texas outgained Oklahoma, all the power metrics. They had played better than Oklahoma, but they turned the ball over, I think it was four times. Quinn Ewers played his by far his worst game of the season. And rivalry games force teams into making mistakes that they otherwise wouldn't have in the college level. These are not professionals. For even Regardless of how much the top-end kids are getting paid, they're still not professionals. And there's emotion that comes with it, especially when you're on the road. And so I think any time you have a team go back to Washington, having to escape against Washington State late in the season, right? I don't care more often than not. I don't care what it looks like in a rivalry game as long as you win. Now, there are, there are exceptions to that example when a team is really down bad. But if it's a, a team that is even competent and that's your biggest rival, you should expect that you're going to get everything they have and more on the other side. And all it takes or all it matters is coming out on the other side with a win in those games. Taylor, what have you made of the transfer portal here early on? A lot of quarterbacks, Dylan Gabriel, uh, just one of the many names, uh, Kyle McCord. uh, As far as quarterbacks go, there's plenty to talk about at that position alone, but uh, anything jump out to you as far as this uh, early few days of the transfer portal? Well, I think the first thing that jumps out is just the volume. Again, it's, it's shocking to see the number of kids that jump in the portal, and it's also a reminder how many guys we have that are still out there with eligibility that that benefited from a COVID year and it's still screwing up some of the recruiting in high school and junior college kids because you got guys that are out there Tyler Shuck transfers from Texas Tech to Louisville it's going to be his seventh year of college football between COVID years and medical red shirts and his his regular red shirt so we still have another couple years of that playing out with kids that were impacted by getting a COVID year 
the other thing that, that kind of an overarching thing that stands out to me is we just need some sort of governance over this so badly. And there's a number of things that I wish uh, we could change about the transfer portal era. I think it's great that kids have the opportunity to move around, but there is no other structure in sports where you can pick up whenever you want and move on every single time that you have a, a kid that builds up, they have a good year, they put together one good semester and then they move on. And the, the people that we talk to week in and week out, the argument is, well, coaches can move around. Why can't kids move around? Coaches, you're seeing guys that are getting out of the business because this is so exhausting having to recruit nonstop. And I, I just keep going back to, we need some sort of governance around when kids can transfer. I would condense down the portal window. I would also move it to where it's after uh, and I get there's compliance issues with end of semester, but having bowl games where a third of your roster hits the portal if it's not a meaningful bowl game, that's a broken structure. And uh, I get, uh, the, the last part of your question, I thought Kyle McCord is an interesting one, and, and that probably means that behind the scenes, Ohio State told him, hey, we're going to go pay a kid. We're going to go test the, the portal. And uh, he, when you get that signal, you realize that's not a job that most people give up starting quarterback at Ohio State hitting the portal to me means they told him behind the scenes, hey, we're going to probably go get somebody else. And 11-1, and one too. I mean, like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know. We can do better. Oh, well, and the thing is, Taylor, and, like, this is just what's kind of um, – I mean, and look, they'll get some, I'm sure they'll get somebody and, and everybody like, wow, Ohio State. But he's 11 and one. And the one that they lost is Michigan. The guy who lost it the two years before was CJ Stroud, who was the second pick in the draft. So it's not really a quarterback thing that Ohio State's not beating Michigan necessarily. Well, I would say some of the quarterbacks that Ohio State has had the past few years. Uh, I think it's reasonable for that fan base to feel a little spoiled at the quarterback yeah. spot. And there was a step down in production in Colin McCord. There's, mm -hmm. there's no doubt about it. That is not going to be a first round pick. Uh, can he be a really good college quarterback? Yes. I think he's already proven that. Is he going to be an elite college quarterback that has a chance to be a difference maker in the biggest games against Penn state and Michigan? No, I don't think so. And that's what Ohio state is after. They are, uh, year in and year out, it feels like for the better part of, gosh, a decade, Ohio State has had blue chip quarterbacks that end up being NFL draft picks and sometimes in their backup spots. And Joe Burrow was a backup at Ohio State. So um, I can understand the frustration from Ohio State fans in that regard. I do not understand uh, some of the irrational calls for Ryan Day's job, a guy that's I forget what his record is, but he's got five losses and they're all against top five teams. I would pump the brakes there for Ohio State fans. Uh, but in this world where the highest bidder can go buy a new quarterback, and it's, you know Cam Ward is the guy that I would be thinking about, it doesn't altogether shock me that they are moving off from Colin Ford. So, yeah, I was looking over the list earlier of all the transfer court. You got Aiden Childs is in there, Dylan Gabriel, uh, McCord, uh, let's see, Dante Moore, Will Howard, uh, amongst some of the names, but would Cam Ward stand out to you above all those guys, uh, even just slightly? I think Cam Ward has the highest ceiling. That's an NFL arm, um, and his story, for anybody that, that is not, by now, most people have at least heard the name, but go look at his story from being completely unrecruited, goes to Incarnate Word, who at Incarnate Word, they had to hide him because they, were, they didn't want him throwing at camps because they were afraid somebody else would discover how talented this kid was. 
goes to Incarnate Word, sets all sorts of records at the FCS level, follows Eric Morris to Washington State, and now he's about to make uh, quite a bit of money for one more year of college eligibility. I think he's probably got the highest ceiling. Dylan Gabriel is interesting because I don't think that is a, a top-round NFL draft pick. I think that's a guy that will fight to get on a roster, but is a really good college quarterback. He's accurate. He's got a quick release. He just doesn't have a real big arm. He struggles driving the ball downfield on deep shots. But that's a, a guy, I, I believe he's on a, a visit this weekend to Oregon. That would make a ton of sense for Dan Lanning. Who's somebody that could come in, run your offense effectively, pretty mobile as well. That's another one that stood out. But, you know, keep tabs on this stuff because there's – the Athletic does a really nice job after the transfer portal closes of tracking where kids end up. Some of this is forced, right? Some of this is not just kids that are testing the portal on their own because they went out and did it on their own. A lot of these kids are being told by coaching staff, hey, you're not going to have a spot here next year. But a lot of these kids that end up in the portal at the FBS level do not end up at another FBS destination. A lot of them have to either transfer down, and then some of them just altogether don't end up with a roster spot anywhere. What do you think about DJ Uyunglele uh, and where he might wind up? It would not surprise me if he followed uh, along with his former head coach from Oregon State to Michigan State. I think that's a, a, a style of play in the Big Ten that he would fit in there. I think it, he Pac-12, uh, colder weather, Big Ten, physical, run the game, run run the ball well, have a good solid run game, play action off of it. I think if he were to follow in the footsteps of his head coach to Michigan State, I think that would make sense. I, you don't want – if I'm DJ Uyunglele, I'm steering clear of conferences like the Big 12, anywhere where uh, you're asked to be pretty mobile and put the ball up. 45, 50 times a game throwing the football. I think those are the systems that he'll look to avoid. But it would not surprise me if he ended up at Michigan State. Taylor, I can't remember. Have we talked to you since – I mean, it's only been a few days since Jake Spavital got hired at Baylor. I'm not sure how familiar you are with him, uh, but obviously a big change over there for Dave Aranda, and he had to make some changes, uh, I mean, heading into next season. It's it's do or die, basically, for him uh, on the hottest of hot seats. But any thoughts on Spavital and, and how that might shake things up in Waco, if at all? Yeah, we, we did talk about it, okay. and I said uh, – no, this is where I said uh, that I was surprised that they brought Dave Aranda back. And, That's right, uh, yep. I, I've told you guys, you guys have very loyal listeners, <laughs> and it was another reminder of that after I said I was surprised they brought Aranda back. They let me know, the, some of which agreed, but some did not agree with what I said. <laughs> okay. Um, but for Spav, look, I think um, that's a guy that obviously – there's potential there. I think the biggest thing for Spav is just an opportunity to get back to where he's not having to deal with recruiting. That was the piece that I, I think he really struggled with at Texas State where they just completely moved away from high school recruiting and was really just hitting the portal in, in junior colleges. Uh, but under Aranda, I think there's certainly potential there. Uh, I think there's more than coaching staff. The piece that Dave Aranda can't say, it's really roster issues. There are – there are holes in the roster and talent deficiencies that they're going to have to address in a major way in the offseason that uh, clearly were issues this year. And Spav, I think, was a good hire. I think a good addition, but like all of these hires, you never know. A lot of these on paper, they look fantastic, and then you get halfway through the season, and uh, you know sometimes they end up being a disaster. Yeah, I thought it was very telling and very uh, coordinated that 
Spavital, like some of the first things he said was talking about how much he likes the Texas High School Coaches Association and respects them. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you probably needed to say that after after the Texas State tenure and, and the portal stuff. But um, sticking with, uh, before we let you go here, one more coaching thing. Willie Fritz, I mean, you're a guy very familiar with the American Athletic Conference. Very interesting that Jeff Trailer staying put, it appears, at UTSA. Willie Fritz obviously going from Tulane to U of H. Then Mike Oresco's out the door, uh, retiring as well. But what do you think about what the Cougs did in getting Willie Fritz uh, down to H-Town? Yeah, I thought that was a home run hire for Houston. Uh, Willie Fritz, for most of his career, head coaching gigs in the state of Texas, going back to his days in junior college and at Sam Houston State, uh, before they made the jump to FBS and before Casey Keeler. Um, he is a program builder. If you look at Willie Fritz's career arc and trajectory, everywhere he's been, he's won. And Tulane, I think people have held his 2021 season against him. And I think it's, people are just using it as a bullet point to say, well, look, they went 2-10 and 10 in, in 2021. And I would just remind people that that was the season that Tulane spent – about two thirds of the season, I think it was, or about half the season in a hotel because they had gotten slammed with a hurricane. Mm. So there were a number of reasons why that 2021 season, I would just take out and point to the success that Willie Fritz has had at every level. And I think he'll do the same at Houston. I think the other piece, uh, Jeff trailer, I think that buyout, because it was a 10 year agreement that he signed that buyout gave heartburn, I think to Houston where we're going to have to spend a little more than they wanted to just to, not only to, to what they were going to have to spend on his contract. And I think Fritz is making four and a half million a year, but trailer, I think his buyout was like seven or seven and a half million dollars. And uh, the structure that he has in place with UTSA, I think is what ultimately kept him there for at least another season. Taylor McCarg uh, with us every Thursday, Taylor, thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. All right, guys. I appreciate it. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.